0: It's hard to imagine the extinction of a species. And when we do imagine it, we usually think about animals, birds, like the passenger pigeon, the woolly mammoth that they're talking about bringing back, the dodo. We don't think about trees. But here in Missouri and across much of the country, an Ozark chinkapin species that used to exist went extinct, or at least we thought and one organization is putting all they got into restoring this beautiful Ozark chinkapin. Today, we're gonna to find out how this came to be, what they're doing, and what the future of
1: this tree looks like. I'm Brandon Butler. I'm Nathan Shags McLeod.
2: I'm Leslie Bost.
1: And I'm Stephen Bost, with the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation. Welcome
3: to the Driftwood Outdoors podcast.
0: If you've always dreamed of finding a special piece of outdoor recreation property in the Midwest, you don't need to look any further than Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. With hundreds of land listings available, Living the Dream Outdoor Properties has that special hunting, fishing, camping, or farming property you're looking for.
3: Living the Dream Outdoor Properties isn't just for buyers. If you have a property to sell, Living the Dream makes the process super easy and brings to the table their huge following of prospective buyers. With the land market on fire right now, Living the Dream will bring you the offer your property deserves
0: when it came time for me to sell driftwood acres there was no question i was going to work with daryl heineman and his team at living the dream properties their professionalism made the process a breeze And they brought me multiple offers in the first two weeks. After my personal experience with Living the Dream, I can tell all of you with confidence that this is the real estate firm you want to work with for any land deal.
3: For more information or to contact Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, visit livingthedreamland.com. That's livingthedreamland.com.
0: Our friends at Mongo Attachments know conservation doesn't happen by accident. Over the years, they have helped transform thousands of acres of land into valuable habitat for wildlife.
3: With the use of Mongo Attachments, landowners, nonprofit organizations, Government agencies and contractors have restored, improved, maintained, or built from scratch incredible wildlife habitats.
0: Mongo Attachments is an industry leader in attachments for small and mid-sized excavators. They have a wide array of attachments designed to meet your land management needs, including ice and root rippers, land clearing rakes, hydraulic flail mulchers, forestry head mulchers, hydraulic tilt grading buckets and tree shears
3: Mongo sets up every attachment for your machine specs so that all you have to do is hook it up and go to work if you have land that needs work, get the right tools for the job from Mongo Attachments to learn more about taking land management to the next level, visit mongoattachments.com that's mongoattachments.com
0: Turkey season is one of the most exciting times of the year. Nothing fires me up more than a gobble shattering the pre-dawn darkness. This year I'll be chasing turkeys with a CZ Reaper Magnum. The
3: CZ Reaper Magnum is built to slay turkeys. It's an over-under with three and a half inch chambers. The shorter 26 inch barrels make it more maneuverable in the woods or a blind. The included picatinny style rail makes adding optics simple, and it comes stock with QD swivels in the front and back for adding a sling.
0: Like all the firearms from CZ USA, which now includes the entire Colt line, the Reaper not only functions properly, it looks great doing so. The polymer stocks are completely clad in camouflage, upping my turkey slay and stealth game even more.
3: For more information about the CZ Reaper Magnum and all the fine firearms from CZ USA, visit cz usa.com. That's czusa.com.
0: Chances are you know how important hunting is to conservation, and you likely recognize the incredible hunting heritage we have in America. What you may not consider, though, is how important hunting is to our economy.
3: That's why we are proud to partner with Hunting Works for Missouri to promote the strong economic partnership between the hunting and shooting communities and the economy of
0: Missouri. Hunting Works for Missouri sheds light on the economic impact hunting has on our economy. Since its inception in 2012, I've proudly served as a co-chair of Hunting Works for Missouri. Our membership consists of businesses representing a cross-section of the Missouri economy. These include sporting goods retailers, restaurants, hotels and resorts, Gas stations and convenience stores, and of course, all the taxpayers of the state, hunters and non hunters alike, who benefit from the license fees, taxes, and jobs the hunting and shooting industries provide.
3: To learn more about Hunting Works for Missouri, which is a program of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, visit huntingworksformo.com. That's huntingworksformo.com.
0: Big shout out and thanks to everyone who's taken a minute to review us online. We really appreciate it. If you haven't done it yet, we ask you to take 30 seconds and go do it today.
3: Like share, rate, subscribe. Let everyone know how much you love this podcast so we can keep doing it. And be sure to follow us on all the social media platforms, Driftwood Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook, and keep submitting those mystery bait bucket questions. You can email us info at driftwoodoutdoors.com or again, just find us on Instagram and Facebook. Hope you enjoy this new podcast.
0: The Driftwood Outdoors podcast with Brandon Butler
3: and Nathan Shags McLeod. First, we got some good news coming out of the Ozark region. Federal charges have been filed in connection with the Round Springs arson. On March 1st of this year, A federal grand jury for the Eastern District of Missouri in Cape Girardeau returned an indictment against Marvin Mark Rimster in connection with the arson of the Round Spring Visitors contact station and the Ozark National Scenic Riverways last December. He's been charged with the felony offense of arson, burglary, theft of government property and felon in possession of a firearm the arson charge is punishable by imprisonment for up to 20 years the investigation remains ongoing but it is a very good sign that he has been
0: indicted if you're new to the podcast uh we we have a little bit of a history in this area that includes arson (laughs) with fire Uh, i once had a cabin uh, that was burned to the ground by an arsonist back in january of 2021 Uh, law enforcement has stepped up their efforts to curb poaching which really is what led to my cabin being burned down it was retaliation for turning in some poachers the national park service led by their great crew of rangers down there with some other support really went after poachers in the area during uh, deer season this year and we don't know yet for sure what the motivation was but Uh, It seems likely that there was a connection that led to this historic national building at the Round Spring Bridge campground area being burned to the ground and a pickup truck stolen. Um, I had been in contact with some law enforcement in the area, and they told me that they were going to put everything they had into an investigation, which is not what happened with my fire. And thankfully, that investigation worked. There was some great police work done, and they've got this guy in custody. It doesn't sound like he acted alone because he had to get there somehow and left in a different vehicle. So it sounds like there are other suspects uh, and more arrests forthcoming. And if you'd like more information, we have his mugshot
3: up and uh it totally looks like big. the meth trade is gonna take a hit in in the area. As if you could imagine well, I'm not even gonna say it, but yeah, you can go see the picture yourself on our Facebook page, your foot outdoors, with all the information there as well. Man, I found this super interesting because we talk a lot about smallmouth fishing. I know Brandon, you said if you could only go after one species on your final day, it would be racing a smallmouth on a Ozark stream. But it It's interesting when you look now at Yellowstone that there was a recent catch of a smallmouth bass in Montana's Gardner River, and it has the Yellowstone National Park biologists losing their mind. They're freaking out. So do you
0: know I wrote my column about this this week? No, I did not. I haven't read your column yet okay normally you start these off by saying hey uh, you wrote a column about this no we're at, we're at the CM, CFM convention I haven't even checked yeah, my email so, so no I got this off uh, msn.com I took that press release from the Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks and I wrote about how climate change is affecting uh, species dispersion and the fact that I lived in Montana for four years and I talk about the different biodiversity of the upper Yellowstone River compared to the lower Yellowstone River which is where I live, Billings and then down beyond until it gets into the plains of North Dakota and confluences with the Missouri River. Uh, But this is crazy that they have now got three smallmouth from uh, Livingston upstream, which is the iconic trout water of the Paradise Valley. I, I talked about Walter in the article, my smallmouth bass that I captured and kept in a fish tank for two years in college. Oh, yeah. And what an army of Walters will do to the cutthroat trout population that fwp and so many others are trying to protect well
3: because we sit here on this podcast and we're always about free the fighter and that yeah. you should never put a smallmouth on a stringer let's let them go but now they're talking about uh, if you catch one on that upper yellowstone you are required to kill it and tell uh game and fish
0: that you you caught one and killed one i wrote that this is gonna hurt the soul of any serious <laughs> smallmouth fisherman but you have to kill these fish yeah So, yeah, ironic,
3: man. That's wild. And it's not clear how the smallmouth bass got into the Gardner, but it might have evolved an illegal transfer of bass from another water.
0: And and just to clarify that, the Gardner River confluences with the Yellowstone in Gardner, Montana, which is the northern entrance, like the iconic Roosevelt Arch is at the north entrance of Yellowstone. So this is right at Yellowstone Park.
3: It's just it's I find it so fascinating just the different ecosystems and how other people portray fish because I could hear the groans just by saying you got to kill, you got to kill the smallmouth if you if you catch one. But just the the different different regions and the different ecosystems and what's important. And
0: now, Steve, you were giving me the thumbs up when Shag said that about me chasing smallmouth. And I know you've spent a lot of time in the Ozarks. Now you got a love for smallmouth bass as well. Oh yeah,
1: I uh, I love fishing. Period. That's my problem. I have too many outdoor activities I love, I guess, so to speak. But it's uh, you know. And I've worked for almost 17 years in a trout park you know, here on Upper Current River at Montauk, which has just been fantastic. And uh, but yeah, I've I've grew up uh, fishing for smallmouth, and it's hard to beat. You know, putting on your vest, wading out in the water. There's nobody else around, and usually I have my pistol with me in case I see a squirrel or two. You know, and um, and it's just it's great. It's real therapeutic. Call me real simple-minded, but uh, you're out there in nature and you're waiting, and uh, it's just really a great, great thing. Yeah.
3: So I, I got to know, you spent all that time at Montauk, which is my favorite trout park, my favorite state park. Well, I was
0: just about but, to say, like, if I outlive him, I'm going to be dumping his ashes at the, <laughs> in like in the, the river. I'm sure. outside yes. of the park.
3: Yes. Uh, just drop me in the river and let the yep. fish feed right. on me. I can just be part of the habitat. You don't even have to put me in the burner. But you're a smallmouth guy, but worked at a trout park. If you had to choose... Which one are you going to take? Are you going to take the trout or are you going to take the smallmouth?
1: That's too difficult. Don't put me. There. No, it's not in smallmouth. Man. <laughs> no, it's, it's trout. It's, it's always smallmouth. trout.
0: Leslie, tiebreaker. A smallmouth. Yes. yes. Oh, <laughs> get out of here.
1: <laughs> they're they're both great. You know, it's it's good. It's all good. It is
0: weird though, man, <laughs> that we talk about like displacing natives, and these trout don't belong in the current river. Now I love that they're there. He loves. That they're there more than I do, and and it's it's weird how we accept some invasives as like this grand success story, and most others as you know this very detrimental species that came to be in a certain part of the world. So what is it? Is it the financial aspects? Is it the
1: traditions that arise from it? Is it the the classiness of trout Well it's you can get into a lot with this It depends on how far do you want to go back if you want to go back about six or seven thousand years ago um, you know you don't see this online but there's books that have pictures of Brook trout in Missouri you know our climate got really hot about 5000 years ago and we know that from the evidence at Pond. but that's natural dispersion so that wasn't that wasn't us taking rainbow trout
0: from california yes, and dumping them off the train trestles or browns from europe right, right in right 1860s they came to north america and were first planted in the Paramarquette river in michigan so we brought those here yes. and so it's a totally different story than like the natural evolution of species yes. movement but If somebody was to drop Northern Pike off a train trestle today into Crane Creek, we would be calling for their head. Yes. But somebody dumped these McLeod rainbows in there that display smallmouth, and now they're glorified for it. So how do we
1: distinguish good from bad? Very good question. And, you know, and you bring up a lot of good points. One thing to think about, too, is if uh, if we would have a opening native day like uh, suckers, I don't think you'd have the crowds of people that would show up or, you know, and what if we left Lake of the Ozarks as a river? Mm-hmm. You know, we probably wouldn't be sitting here today and and I was thinking about that driving through the hills coming up here though. So we've modified things. Some things we've we've messed up more than others. But I think the good thing is we have the wisdom today to make a difference and kinda of like what you were showing on the video a while ago. I mean, that is just mind blowing anybody to see this. So we've got failing farms now and there's the option where you can turn it around and make a family farm a place your children want to be at and the farmer can have more time because he's in the renewable energy business and doesn't have to farm as much and so now he can do the things he wants to and create a, a lifestyle for his uh, kids to stay on the farm well so, i appreciate
0: you saying that talking about raceland alternative energy where i work and our our prairie restoration efforts and cover crop Adoption that we uh, are looking to monetize, but you know, there's a flip side to everything. I went out to North Dakota. I spoke uh, at the America's Grasslands Conference in Bismarck, and went out and toured a um, all grass-fed beef operation, and they only use natives. and The farmer said, "You know, I'm saving so much money on my input costs." But I only work 14 minutes a day. It takes me seven minutes to move these cattle twice a day from a quarter acre to a quarter acre where they graze. So I spend all my money on the lake in my motorboat, burning (laughs) it up in gas. So it's like you're doing all these good things for the environment and then you're out there burning all that gasoline on the lake partying.
1: So, you know, maybe the dude needs a second job. You know, one thing, listen to you up here a while ago, and this is a little bit off our topic, I guess, but it's it's just amazing to me, you know, whether you're bringing in trout or whether you're damming up a river to make a lake, um, I think we don't fully appreciate the difference we can make in the world around us, good or bad. You know, and what you're talking about a while ago is a way of restoring farms and the fertility of the Great Plains and our prairies. And, um, you know, it's something that we all have that ability to do. And I think none of us fully appreciate or realize the difference that we have to impact other people or the world around us, good or bad. True that.
3: And with our final story, I think the pandemic might actually be finally winding down because the World Health Organization has now come out
0: talking about how we need to have quiet zones at concerts. As much as I'd like to see somebody put a bullet squarely between Putin's eyes, you got to give the dude credit. He killed COVID real quick (laughs) when he crossed that Ukrainian border. Now, you know, that... They don't even talk about it on the news now.
3: Well, the World Health Organization literally just came out and issued new global guidelines for concert venues that suggest keeping the average sound level below 100 decibels to protect people's hearing. According to one source, uh, the average rock concert can be more like 120 to 130. When Arrowhead Stadium broke the decibel record, it was in the upper 140s when they were trying to be the loudest stadium in the NFL, and they also say venues should start thinking about adding quiet zones where people can go get away from the noise.
0: Well, the noise is one issue, but one, we're back to the COVID to tie that back in. What's frustrated me uh, about all of this, and I'm vaccinated and openly, you know, we'll say that I am, but I have a lot of friends and people that I care about that have chosen not to be. And I believe that we still have that right in America to make that choice. And for those people that haven't to be unable to go into a concert venue, like places that you and I go, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus by naming them, but to have to show your card to go see a music, like a live music night. I just don't think that's right. And I like the fact that some of these people have held their ground and all of that is going to get lifted soon and, and they'll be able to go back and see live music. But that's been a real frustration for me because now I've got to go to Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, and I'll be there till Friday. And I have to carry my papers with me.
3: Well, no, I was talking to Jeff I, Jeff Trigg, and he was in Washington. Yeah. And it's like we're we're, we're lucky here in the in Missouri when we it comes are. to a lot of the regulations. But I shouldn't have made the COVID jokes. I really wanted to talk about concerts. And now yeah. now I got to get can you. Still off, talk about. Concerts, I got to get you off your it, COVID soapbox. Like it's
0: n- it's really no big deal for me to go like uh, show my card, but it hurts me as like a freedom loving American that I have to do that. And to be like papered, you know, no, I'm not going go the, to go into the like European comparisons of 80 years ago. But still, like I took my daughter to the Columbia Theater, uh, one of the Columbia theaters, and we went to see an awesome jazz concert. And she's 14. She hasn't been vaccinated. And uh, she's had one shot, but not the second and, uh, you know, I just pulled her through, like I showed mine and then I just held her by the hand and the doorman was like, uh, duh, 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 too late. Yeah. <laughs> I just kind of walked on by and you know what? I don't care. Like I, and, and that might really upset some people, but this is a 14 year old child that's supposed to show papers to go see a concert. I don't know, man. I'm ready for all of that to be behind us.
3: I originally just wanted to say, Agreed. what was the loudest concert
0: you've been to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of them are too loud for me. I don't, I don't like going into a small bar with loud music. Like, and I guess mm-hmm. I've just been old since the day I was born. But
3: you're a music lover. You go to, a, you go to
0: a lot of shows. I, you don't want Sturgill Simpson to turn it down. I had an incredible music experience in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. It was a private show. This is how, like, at this point in my life, I'm so swanky that this is the life I want. Like, VIP passes right past the line, up the back stairs, into a room where five different musicians came on and played with their acoustic guitars and sang songs to a crowd of about 200 you could get to the bar and get a drink. You had a place to sit. And my cranky old manness—it's really starting <laughs> well, to like. Pay let, off.
3: let me ask everyone this then before before we move on. What's the one concert you've been to that stands out? Like, if you could think of, like the one.
0: I saw Garth Brooks this summer, and I, I, I've always liked Garth Brooks. I'm not some like crazy Garth Brooks fan, but that show was not a concert. No, it was like it was like a theatrical. Uh, Event and it was a hundred thousand people in uh, the Cornhusker Stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska. That there was an open space in there, and when you've got a hundred thousand people singing "Blame It All on My Roots," you know, together, it was the most like. I don't know, like just incredible experience to see like that much like human energy in one space. And that dude was like the maestro of it. Like he is the best of all time I think at putting on a live show.
3: The one that sticks out for me is I'm a 90s grunge kid growing up in the Pacific Northwest and even though Stone Temple Pilots wasn't a real Seattle band they're one of my favorite from that era and I got to see them perform for the final time as a band they had gotten back together in the 2000s we were in St. Louis Scott Weiland came out and just rocked and then apparently he was still having his issues with drug abuse and they were playing uh, in Tennessee the the following day and he refused to come out of his trailer and like the band was like I'm, we're done with this guy and they broke up again so for the for the last time, so I got to see STP as a whole band, and you just forget how many hits they had. Like you you sit there and listen for ninety minutes, and you're singing along to every single song. How about you guys?
2: I got to see Shania Twain a couple of years ago. Oh, I bet that was a good and show. It was amazing. <laughs> she's she's amazing. So
0: I saw her in Milwaukee at Summerfest yeah. years ago.
1: I'm not going to age myself.
2: <laughs> She's the best.
1: Um, uh, one that comes to mind is uh, Alabama. I heard them at a rodeo, just a real short little concert um, years ago before they quit, you know, playing for good. And uh, that one kind of sticks to me. That was that was good, real old kind of country music. I, I feel guess. like I saw. Yeah, I'm, uh, showing uh, my, I'm showing my. Age. Oh, I, I love video. Alabama, man! Yeah.
0: I, that mountain music. That was my theme song at the cabin. I'd play that. You see that mountain over there? Yeah. Someday I'm going to climb that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Than the banjo. Comes, yeah. Oh yeah! But uh,
1: I've got a big I heard variety that gonna... of music I like. I've I've been in church before and heard uh, singing that just really inspires you and and motivates you. And and uh, I like Metallica too. Oh, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, like there the you listen. go. You got a little bit of everything Different. in you. Yes. I've been <laughs> to some Metallica shows. They are mm, yeah yeah. There's something.
0: All right. So here's what we got you on the podcast for we need to learn about the ozark chinkapin tree we need to hear this story of how you've kind of made this your life's work at this point to restore yes, a species yeah. you've got your daughter <coughs> along for the ride with you doing good work mm-hmm. so how did this all come to tell first of all tell us what it is tell us about the tree about your foundation and then i want to hear how this all started
1: Okay, well, um, to give you a good assessment of why I'm sitting here now and what brought me here, you've got to go back in time uh, to when I was a little kid, uh, about four or five years old. I still have videos. Our our family, I grew up in the, the boot hill, the farmland of Missouri, which needs Rudy's Uh, approach to farming so bad the land is like hydroponics and but growing up though uh there i learned a lot of good things Uh, my grandparents on both sides were farmers so i grew up with this uh ethic of hard work and sticking to good choices that's what i came up with and but about every other weekend though we would travel from that flat almost treeless farmland You know, with the muddy ditches, uh, we traveled about ninety minutes up into the Ozarks uh, by the Current River, where we had a little cabin at. We called it the Shack, and um, it was right on a spring-fed stream that ran right in the Current River. And you talk about a making an impact on a young individual. So you know, hunting, fishing, swimming, canoeing. you know all the water activities and the water was so good you could drink the water out of the spring and I do it today too and so that had a significant impact on me and um, so the land that we had that small piece of land that my grandfather had purchased later became Ozark National Scenic Curveway here I'm giving away my age and so 1964, 1965 around there yeah I want to say and so um, you know but they began to buy out people if you didn't sell if I remember correctly uh, once he passed away we'd lose that land so we made a decision to sell it somewhere in there before it became Ozark National Scenic Riverway and then so we bought some land further back away from the river but the older I get Became the more I missed that area where I would hunt right down by the river. And uh, you know, you're talking big woods here, you know, this area. And um, so there's a gentleman up there that I'd seen over the years hunting, and uh, I finally got to know him. And he lived to be almost 100 years old. And so I would go up there and I would camp in a tent, even though we had a cabin, you know, a few miles from there. I would still go back to the same place where the spring was at because that was where I really wanted to be. And so this guy began to. He was very smart. He never. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade, but he was the most intelligent man. And he spoke with authority on everything he did. And if he said it, you could bet the farm on it. He was that kind of a person. He was a good woodsman. He knew every tree. He knew every plant. He knew every animal and all the habits of them. And um, and he was very smart. And he was telling me about this tree that grew. In the Ozarks, but they're all gone today. And uh, it was, it was more. They were, they had delicious nuts. They were so good to eat, real sweet and tasty, like a real sweet almond. And they grew every year, not like acorns, you know, nothing like that or hickory nuts. They were dependable. And he said they were so good and so dependable, they would shovel them up, put them into wagons, and they would eat them. They would use them for livestock food. And you could even trade them, or you know, for things you wanted. You know, you didn't have to sell them. You could trade them for a brand new pair of shoes. You could trade them for coffee. You know, they had that kind of a value to them. And so I was really fascinated. And I thought, well, he's talking about. The American chestnut. So every year when I'd go up there and I'd bow hunt and I'd camp out for a week, I would talk to him a little bit more, and I was really intrigued. And uh, because I didn't know anything about this tree, I when I first went to college, I've got a degree in history and one in science. When I first went to college though, my first year as a forestry major, and um, I've always been interested in forest. And so I, I began to think now, why is it I never heard of this tree? And everybody I've talked to has not heard of this tree. Something. Was not adding up, and so I began to go into the library and look at books, and um, and I found where it showed this tree, real small range, southwest Missouri, northwest Arkansas, and in Missouri is on the critically impaired list, an S2, critically endangered threatened and uh, some states like louisiana said s1 less than 500 species you know listed for that and so my curiosity was growing every year i'd go back and see him again when i'd camp there and trying to find out more and um, so i said well maybe some of these trees are left he said no they're all gone so to understand what happened to them you have to understand what happened the american chestnut one of the largest mass extinctions in modern history Around 4 billion, with a B, American chestnut trees died. They represented about one-fourth or one-fifth the trees in the eastern U.S., and for the most part, they weren't here. We had our native Ozark chinkapin, or Ozark chestnut, which is a lot more drought-tolerant than the American chestnut. And so I began to be intrigued. It was like driving up in hill country and listening to you on the radio, and you're losing signal, but you know he's there. You know there's something there, and you're not hearing all of what he's telling you. Yeah. And so I began to be a detective, and uh, I started doing research on it, started talking to people, and I was finding people all over the native range that shared the same kind of interests as I did. So and, uh, I, I began to reach out to them in 2005. I was, I'd been doing programs. At state parks I've worked at and, um, you know, on the Ozark Chinquapin, and I kept waiting for someone to do something. So in 2005, I thought, I'm going to see if I can find a tree. And so tree book authors and experts told me, you're wasting your time. The tree you're looking for does not exist. The blight was so thorough, no American chestnut, no Ozark Chinquapin survived. And so listen to what they said, but I used to teach history and science and, and because of my background that I knew that it was extremely rare for any disease or pathogen to kill 100% of any population. You know, we're sitting here today, yet uh, there should be probably, you know, maybe four or 500 people here. But our ancestors survived every disease, the black plague, you know, every disease, every war that came along, we knew when to stand up and fight and when to be quiet. You know, think about it. We have those genetics. And so uh, I knew it's really rare for any disease or pathogen to completely wipe out a whole population. So based on that, I started looking. And then I guess in about 2006, I found my first tree. And now we're up to over 100, I guess, Leslie, that Mm -hmm. we found. And we've been doing a breeding program. Uh, I'm curious. You spent how many years looking for it?
3: Walk me through actually finding one. Like, what were you feeling? That had to have been... I, I, can't, oh I couldn't even imagine something <laughs> happening in my life that would compare to having a mission where everyone's told you there's not one and then you find it. Like, walk me through. You kind of just jumped right over that and I find that to be m- m- maybe the most compelling part of the story.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's good. It would be the equivalent to you up at um, maybe some stream somewhere fishing and you didn't catch a smallmouth. You caught a brook trout that was a holdover from five or 6,000 years ago. I was in the stratosphere. It was absolutely. Was there a
3: dance? I can imagine. Was, just a, oh my, a wood dance. I've never.
1: That is. Uh, I don't use drugs. I, this stuff is is what you know makes me feel great, and uh, it was a feeling I could not believe, and it, it it just proved to me yes, there's at least one survivor. And I thought there's one. There's got to be more. So I was a man on a mission. And so, uh, and so we set up this network, and I'm not going to call it grassroots. I'm going to call it tree roots network we have. And we work with landowners. We work with people that are foresters. We work with people that remember them. And uh, so I've talked to those people, interviewed them, and all that strengthened my resolve. And I get letters and emails from people. I had one lady down in Texas. She, she sent me a letter, and she said, you know, uh, my grandmother used to take me out when I was a young girl. We would collect chinkapins from a real large tree uh, right at the edge of the woods, and she said it died of the blight. And she said, "I hope y'all can do something about restoring this tree." And she said, "My grandmother died at the age of 104. So, so when you have that to kind of strengthen your resolve of what you're doing, you know, this is not just, you know, this is not based on money. We're we're trying to save and restore species." and um and so it is a great thing this tree is so absolutely incredible it's native to missouri it makes a lot of nuts they're rugged and so with the breeding program that we've got it's taken lots of work the short version is we have created here i guess about 3 years ago a tree that is so profound it's 100% pure Ozark pen. Uh There's nothing foreign mixed in with it. It has high blight resistance. In fact, the blight resistance is so high, it's higher than Chinese chestnut, Castania melissima. What's, what is blight? I'm sorry. Is okay. that a disease? Yeah, the chestnut blight is a fungal disease that uh, they first noticed it in the Bronx Zoo in 1904, but they think it probably came over in the late 1800s, maybe from mm-hmm. uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, imports of Japanese chestnuts, or it could possibly from uh, China and so that fungal disease spread and that's what decimated the American chestnut then it it was also decimating Ozark chinkapins as well and so um, so we have a blind resistant Ozark chinkapin that we're restoring today and uh, it's kind of like what what you're at you know when you said We are doing this now with Raceland Industries. We have it now. We've got it worked out. We're doing that's where we're at right now. And so we're restoring this back. This is not something where we've got to do more research on. You know, we continually do that. Leslie, uh, you know, volunteers and works at Missouri Botanical Garden. We've got other laboratories, uh, you know, they've worked with us, University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, SUNY University of Forestry in, um, in New York. And one of the interesting things that came from all this is we have higher resistance to the blight than even the transgenic American chestnut they modified by putting the wheat gene in. And nobody's talking about that. But their own labs confirm that. This is what we have that we're going to be putting back in the forest of not just Missouri, but its native range. It was in East Texas. It was in Missouri. It was in Arkansas, Louisiana, even in the corner of um, the, uh, I guess it'd be the southeast corner of um, Kansas. It was in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Virginia, and even Pennsylvania and Maryland, So it had a lot larger range. And through all this lab work we've done, we found out that the Relic American chestnut is not the oldest chestnut in North America. It's our native Ozark chinkapin. And by the way, this tree was named in 2013 by American foresters, America's favorite tree. And a lot of people don't know that. But if you talk to the wildlife and ask them, Mm -hmm. is a white oak or red oak your favorite tree? They can't talk, but uh, their actions give you the answer. So speaking about oaks, there might be people out there confused because there's also an
0: oak tree that's called the chinkapin.
1: Very good, very good. And we run this quite a bit. And so the the chinkapin oak, and I get a lot of emails on this, and, you know, at one time I didn't know any of this. We all learn the knowledge that we have, you know, and so I'm not going to bash anybody because they don't know the difference. And so the chinkapen oak got its name because it the leaves look very similar to an Ozark chinkapin, And. Um, and so the Ozark chinkapin is a true chestnut. It's castania. and um, and so the uh, chest the um, let's see the chinkapin oak is Quercus, and uh, so there's a lot of confusion on that. And we even see the way it's spelled, like on survey notes, historic articles, and newspapers. Uh, you know, it was in Missouri all the way up to the Missouri River. We've got old maps. We got survey notes that talk about it, and it was probably even beyond that. So Leslie, Mm -hmm. obviously your dad is incredibly passionate about this and
0: having daughters myself, I know that my passion doesn't always translate into their passion. (laughs) I think most, most parents feel that at some point in their life that, you know, you want your children to be as passionate about the things you're passionate about, but that's not always the case. You, on the other hand, carry this passion forward. What is it about this tree and this journey and, and all of it that has has brought you to walk side by side with your father on this?
2: You know, I um, <laughs> I first learned about the Ozark Chinkapin tree at a meeting um, that I attended, that my dad spoke at, at an annual meeting. And I was just intrigued about the tree. I mean, you heard him talk about it and I was very intrigued. This was about, I would say, maybe seven years ago. Um, six years ago, and um, you know, growing up, I would hear my dad talk about this tree. You know, chinkapin, chinkapin. I, I would hear that, and you know, even as a, a young woman, I, I remember borrowing my parents' car and putting my hand under the seat to adjust the the seat and screaming because I was stabbed by a chinkapin burr that was <laughs> was under the seat. So, there's
1: you know, no proof I did that. Put
2: that there. So for me, for a long time, it was just kind of observing, you know, I was aware that the tree existed because I heard, but I didn't really think anything of it, you know, I I was concerned with other things, but...
0: So at 16, you weren't all chinkapin great. No, no. So I still have a chance. You have a chance, yeah.
2: (laughs) But, you know, it was going to that that meeting and hearing my dad and other people talk about it, you know, we had, um, I think Harold was at that meeting and spoke, you know, he was in his 90s and talking about remembering the tree and it was the cultural, the... Um, ecological significance and the the utility that the tree had in in the environment that that attracted me. It was all it was all of those things, and so I my dad's taught a lot of people about this tree, and and his passion is really contagious. And he's, he's gotten a lot of people interested in the tree. So um, it definitely came, though, from, you know, it took time. But um, I heard I attended one of the meetings, and I was I was hooked.
0: Well, I've, I've attended meetings where he spoke, too. So I jokingly told Shags before we started that we're going to say go. And then we're going to say, well, that was really good. Thanks for listening to the Dreamin' Outdoors podcast. Because yeah. he can talk and talk yeah. and talk about this. But it's also knowledgeable. That's what I like about it, man. Yeah. I like listening to you because... You're spitting out the scientific names and you're telling the story of, you know, how it became this passion over time. Uh, You truly might be like the foremost expert on this species in existence. And that's a pretty neat thing, man.
3: Really cool. And the way, he's, the way he talks about it, too. Like, if you would have told me, dude, you're going to be really interested in a tree today. I'd be like, dude, you're out of your mind. Like, I, I, it's a tree. But now just just hearing him talk, and I've, I've seen him speak before, too. It's like, yeah, where's this tree? Let's go. I'm a
0: tree guy now. <laughs> so tell us about the Ozark Chinkapin
1: Foundation and how that came to be, what its mission is, and, and what it's doing today. It's real simple and straightforward. So we're a group of men and women outdoors men and women mainly, uh, but we've got varied backgrounds that don't want to see this tree disappear forever. And we were teetering on the absolute edge of this. And so our mission is to restore this tree back 100% pure, which we've already met that. That's high blight resistance. We have that. And so we'll probably be working ourselves out of a job the next um, you know decade or so, which is really great. That's that's the way it should be. And um, you know, if you look around, if I can tell you just a little bit on this most people when they drive down the road in their vehicles, they look and you see trees on both sides. And you think, well, we're we're doing real good. But what they don't realize, though, is there's absolute wars going on. We have invasives that are crowding out native plants and they're replacing native food for birds and insects that wild turkeys depend on, that our native animals depend on. And then on the other side of the coin, too, we continue to lose species. We lost you know, the Ozark chinkapin, the American chestnut, we lost the elms, we lost the butternut trees, and right now we're losing the ash. And so when you lose this diversity of plants, you also lose your diversity of animals, and so we got black bear populations making a comeback. Um, a lot of people don't know this: bears can eat a variety of food. You know, they eat a lot of the same things we do, but they're most dependent upon the nut crop. So, if a if a sow is pregnant and she goes into the fall and there's no nut crop, guess what? By about the second week of November in Missouri, she aborts all the fetuses. They're most dependent on that nut crop. So at one time with the Ozark chinkapin here that made not just nuts, but a high-protein nut every year, it's it's three or four times higher than a white oak and uh, real high in, in uh, carbohydrates. And it's about double the protein of American chestnut, and it's uh, higher protein. Than a white oak and red oak, I'm sorry, higher in carbohydrates as well. And uh, so it's like a miracle thing. It grows rocky, um, rough, dry hillsides. And so that same black bear, if there's enough nuts for, the, for that salad to eat, then she'll have two to four babies that winter. But if you don't have them, so you've broken the cycle of cubs, bear cubs being born in Missouri. And so there's a lot of benefits to have this. And we can restore populations all we want. But if you don't have the prairie for them, or if you don't have the forest or savannas or native tree species they depend on, you know, and like the elms, I'm a beekeeper too. And in January, elms are the first ones that make the pollen that bees collect, you know. And so everything is definitely tied in.
3: So now at the the height of the tree success before the fungus came, like how many... what, was it like forests full or were, were just patches? Like, can you help me get an idea of like how many of those trees we actually had?
1: You're talking about the Ozark chinkapan? Yes. There's no, there's no surefire answer on that one. Um, they were misidentified a lot. I had the American Chestnut Foundation more than once uh, tell me that they had um, what they thought was a pure American chestnut, but it's actually an Ozark chinkapen tree. And so it's hard to tell, but we know, though, from documented evidence, the range extended um, as far, if not maybe further, than the American chestnut. They used to think it was just in the Ozarks only, but that's not true. And Leslie brought up a really good thing, and I like this. And uh, this is why I surround myself with smart, knowledgeable people, (laughs) so I can make good decisions. Leslie said this years ago. She said, the Ozark chinkapin tree... Has never changed. The only thing has changed is our understanding of the tree. Surrounding yourself with smart people is one thing, but growing your own is a whole nother. That's what I'm more touche. I like that. There you go. You're next.
3: So, what's the what's the future hold then? If we don't know how many we actually had, what's your mission on how many you would like to see? Thriving when you're when you work yourself out of a job in 10 years.
1: Well, if you if you go back and look at historic accounts um, in Missouri, you know Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, the tree was abundant and widespread. You got to remember in in Missouri. Uh, by the eight starting in the 1890s we dramatically changed the forest we logged off everything and then you have secondary growth we had orchards we had farms we had you know the land was changed erosion we were number one in erosion all the way up through the 50s and 60s and so uh, to get back to what you're saying um, how many there were I know it's widespread and abundant so fast forward to today, you know we're going to try to restore this back. We're doing restoration plantings in several locations, even on you know Oklahoma is even part of this. Well, I didn't mention them earlier, um, and so we're doing restoration plantings. Any landowner that wants to plant these trees, it's like playing a football game. You want to put that ball or a basketball game, put the ball in the hands of someone who can do with it. And those landowners, those farmers, those ranchers, those outdoorsmen and and women. Like all of you sitting here are the ones that are restoring this tree right now today and i think we mailed out so far this year a little over three thousand uh blight resistant nuts to people and it's for them to do their thing with them well i've had the good fortune of planting some
0: of these trees with you as well they're growing and doing well down on rudy raceline's farm in osage county missouri so it was really exciting to be You know, hands-on in this project. Have you tried any of nuts yet? No, I don't think these are big enough to produce nuts yet.
1: We need to take care of that. This this is a new superfood. I do
0: want to say, though, that I don't think you'll ever work yourself out of a job. My experience with these conservation organizations is the job changes. If you look at the Wild Turkey Federation, their job was to restore the wild turkey... Then it became to restore the habitat that allows them to manage the populations. So I don't think we have anything to worry about of you working yourself out of a job. There will be uh, plenty of work to do to manage the species and, and ensure its future uh, after you've got it restored.
1: I'm a man on a mission. You know, you've got to be at tree roots, but then, you know, we've got agreements with U.S. Forestry um, in Arkansas. We've got one that we started to do, then we, had, uh, we stopped, and we need to go back again with Missouri. Um, I just talked to Sarah today about these areas in Missouri where we, you know, log them, and you have open canopy now because maybe they cut everything 8-inch DBH and up. And so those are prime places to go in there and restore a tree. They'll start making nuts about four or five years for wildlife you know and a lot of your oaks they don't hit their peak till after about 20 years so we have a tree that makes not just nuts but a lot we had one tree that we counted the nuts on and it was right at 6,000 nuts and the tree was only if I remember correctly like um, I think 31 feet tall so Leslie wow. you're,
0: you're hoping to really devote yourself to this mm-hmm. as well yeah what's the vision for your future in this vein
2: we have so much work to do and <laughs> You know, he didn't touch on this about what we're doing, but, um, you know, he told you about Harold, the man who introduced him to the tree. And it's full circle now because not far from that place where he learned about the tree, we now have research plots with over a hundred blight you know resistant Ozark chinkapin trees. So just to touch on like what we're doing with the foundation, so we've located these rare resistant trees from across the native range and we've taken them either from seed or pollen and we've we put them all in one place. So we have them on research plots where they open pollinate and produce seed. And the seed that these resistant trees produce, some of it it's you know it's less resistant than the parent trees. Some of it, it's about the same, but some of it, there's like an additive effect, and so they're even more blight resistant. So, you know, with with the blight, um, because of genetic variation, you know, like he was saying, there's, it's never going to wipe out an entire population. Che- trees have a lot of genetic variation. They have to in order to survive different types of threats, you know. So, basically... We have collected these rare trees and we have them and they're all open open pollinating. And when somebody joins the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation, we send them seed from these research plots. So we're achieving, um, and then they plant that seed on their private property or you know on their land. And so we're achieving you know restoration on small scale. Um, doing it that way. But, you know, our vision, like my dad was saying is, you know, we understand from, from what we've read that the tree was once co-dominant in some of the areas, you know, it's very specific about where it's, where it will grow. You know, it has a specific, you know, soil and drainage that it likes, but in some of those areas, it was the co-dominant species. So, what we wanted, what my vision is, what we, what our vision is, what we would like to do the next level, which is where we're at now. You know, we've produced, we're able to produce um, populations of trees with resistance. We can't just return one single tree to the forest or a clone. That's not functional and it's not practical. We want these trees to be long lived. You know, they have to be able to survive a lot of different threats. So we're producing genetically diverse populations with enhanced resistance so our goal is to go into these places where we historically know there were large populations of them where there were there was co and there's some of those lingering trees left with varying levels of susceptibility to the blight or resistance and what our vision is is to go into these places that are on you know public lands like on uh, state parks uh on national forest lands and and start to restore them with the trees. And our goal isn't just to, you know, cut everything down and plant ozark Tinkbin. We want to, you know, survey them, see where we can add resistance there. And those trees will actually grow up that we plant and pollinate the other trees that are there. And you'll have, you know, you're retaining the local genetics, and it'll start to actually spread resistance to the adjacent forest, and the, and the trees will naturally recruit over time. And so that's kind of our vision. That's where where we want to take this and what I see.
3: So, you guys aren't genetically modifying these trees at all. You're literally going and finding like the toughest of the tough, getting them together, and then they're producing very tough little
0: tree. We're that's
3: using incredible.
2: traditional tree improvement. I just um, see in your techniques. mind right
0: now, like Groot is like, Yeah, yeah you know, no, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, like I'm Groot. Is, Shags is doing this through a cartoon <laughs> in his head right now.
3: One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And it's interesting, too, because you don't think of, and I'm sorry, but you don't think of trees having personalities or anything like that. And that could just be on yeah. me because I don't pay enough attention <laughs> to it. But hearing you guys talk yeah. about these these tough little guys and yeah. gals, They seem like they have quite the personality.
2: Oh, for sure.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because genetic diversity has got us where we're at. And if it weren't for genetic diversity, we would not find these survivors. And, you know, if you have a field of corn that's uh, genetically modified, that's all the same. If um, you introduce a disease and it kills the first stalk, guess what? The entire field will die. Uh, we humans aren't that way and these Ozark chinkapins aren't that way either the ones that we've got like you said are survivors we we gave you the short version we've actually the old saying out on a limb we've actually taken pollen and I've held ropes before while I've got somebody less calorically challenged than myself up in a tree (laughs) taking pollen that we uh we collected maybe 300 miles away putting on this tree, you know, and then we'll go back and get the seed. And it's not an easy process to do that. Those are chinkapin nuts. Once they hit the ground, they last one hour on average. They're eaten up that quickly. Deer walk over white oak and red oak to eat these. I've never seen so I've got an anything idea. like it. We grind up the nuts and we make <laughs> a new deer
0: attractant. We call it... People do that. With the Ozark chinkapins?
2: I... I was on a chestnut There's uh, no forum. good ideas left. And no, they're all, they're no all a done. guy, d- a guy was talking that about close. doing Dang that. It. And, um, I think that's a, br- a brilliant idea. It would, it's definitely an attractive. I mean, we'll walk on our plots and they, the deer, we can see them. We have trail cams set up on all of our plots to watch and observe the wildlife. They will step over the white oaks, white oak, um, acorns. And they don't, they have, they pick out a tree. There's like deer that like Will sit at a tree. They will, yeah. And these trees are are wildlife magnets. And back to kind of what you guys were talking about earlier. Some people might say, well, you know, because what we're describing is it's like natural selection, but we're helping it along. So people might say, well, if there's lingering resistant trees, why or surviving trees, you know, why are you guys doing this? They're, you know, natural selection will remove, you know, um, the pressure of the blight will remove all the susceptible trees, and then you know you'll have the resistant ones left. Well, the problem is because of land use. Now the range is all dissected, and so some of these tr- resistant trees that are left, they're not in close enough proximity to another resistant tree to to pollinate with it and and reproduce. So if you don't have that, you the species is it's functionally extinct. So we we, we have to intervene and, and do do something before you know it's just a memory. So well,
0: that was going to be my next question. What what are some of the threats other than blight from the success
1: of this? The American actually chestnut, actually one of the big ones that they're dealing with. Even people that have orchards, uh, you know, in in the United States, of hybrid Chinese, basically that's what they use. Um, the um, Phytophthora cinnamomi is an ink root rot disease that attacks them and we're immune to it and it's probably because we we grow on those Our chinkapin grows on dry uh well-drained soil and the american chestnut foundation i'm i'm a member of that i've got good friends there and um, they have had uh, all kinds of fits with the asiatic oak weevil that came here and they primarily eat oak leaves but they love chestnut leaves and so it has really set them back and here in missouri though we've um, seen something kind of interesting when you bring back a species um, it's amazing what you see there's um, we have like chinkapins that are short maybe up to about eight or ten feet tall and you'll see these asiatic oak weevils will really eat the leaves. Once they get up a little bit higher, about 10 feet out of the range of a bobcat, then northern Perulas take over. Neotropical birds will eat all the insects where it looks like we sprayed the leaves.
2: Um. Is it the Asiatic gall wasp?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so yeah. yeah, it is. It's Asiatic gall wasp. So uh, different chestnuts, one
2: of the biggest threats the to chestnuts, you know, that genus is um, Asiatic gall wasp and the Ozark chinkapin is immune
1: to it. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I mixed the oak weevil with it. I yes, no, corrected. I, I okay. knew what you meant. But okay, Asiatic um, oak weevil yes. is the one that eats the leaves and that's what the neotropical birds glean off the leaves 10 feet and up. And then the Asiatic gall wasp, uh, it's it's decimated American chestnuts, and we're immune to it. This tree has a lot of great things going for it.
2: I think one of the biggest threats, there's two, two things besides disease. You know, we've got Phytophthora, which, like my dad was saying, in theory, yes, the trees could get Phytophthora, but they usually do not grow on the, those lower, you know, if a, if a chinkapin's on maybe a lower slope, it could get Phytophthora root rot. But because just by virtue of them growing in, in places where Phytophthora cannot really thrive, well, you know, it's kind of eliminates them from that. But I think the biggest threat is two, th- two things besides those. It's hybrid chestnuts because hybrid, um, any chestnut tree can could in theory, you know, and in actuality, you know, open pollinate with, um, with an Ozark chinkapin. And so we've got people for a long time have been planning, you know, uh, foreign chestnuts. And so that's a problem because if you want to save a species, you don't want it to be intermingled with, you know, foreign chestnuts. So, and the second thing is just the lack of knowledge and understanding. That's the, one of the biggest threats to the, the
1: tree, I would say, growing native is the way to go if you can do it. Like if we went out the Great Plains and we tried to figure up some other kind of grass that grew in Asia, we wanted to plant there, that would not work. You know, these plants and these trees have adapted to right here, and the wildlife is adapted to it. And um, you know, and I think sometimes we need to ask ourselves the question: You know, uh, am I or? Have I, or am I, or will I do what is best for the soil and for the native species that are here? And I think that's a question that I ask myself a lot. And also ask myself, what have I done today that's significant? What will I do tomorrow that's significant? So,
0: well, I feel like, you know. We're helping you out a little bit with having you on the podcast. You posted a picture of a buck a couple years ago. You might want to tell me off air, (laughs) off air. All right. Like we scratch your back. You scratch our back. Like
2: (laughs) (laughs) he's he's referring to that drop time buck.
0: Oh my gosh. Can I
2: tell you, Brandon, people lost their mind over that. I thought it was in
0: Montauk at first. How close is You're it?
2: You're gonna have to cut this. I'm.
0: I'm going to. It's,
2: uh, we can't. Um. Uh, plant. No. It's. It was uh, near yeah. the
1: current river. Okay, so there gives you about a hundred and something miles,
0: which is mind blowing <laughs> to some people because all you hear when you hunt in North Missouri is how there are no big bucks in the
1: Ozarks. That's not true. That no, so it's true. It so far. Not I've true. Never seen anything no. like this. Yeah,
2: yeah. I talked the, to yeah. one of the
1: taxidermists on Current River, and he said that which one? Um, up the one up by Montauk. He said he had never heard of one like that. I showed him a picture of it. Because we are scenic
0: up. river guys all the way. Yeah, they're in I go through there, too. Larry and Heath, those are the guys. Yeah, they're, they're the best. In fact, we've got your deer there. Yeah. I've got yeah. two there now. I picked two up this week on they Thursday. They do good work. They do oh, excellent work. They're, they're doing do my brown trout. Work. Great. And they're just cool, too. I that. So... But, you know, here's the thing, you know. Um, Wait, I didn't get a straight answer, so I'm going to know where this buck was, right? Like
1: I was saying, um,
0: <laughs>
1: we, we just kind of leave it that it was in the current river uh, area. Did you guys and hunt it? it? No, I don't want to shoot it. I wanted okay. to spread it. You, <laughs> you wanted to save it for me, Steve. Some kind oh. of uh, lunacy going on around think? here. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, well, it depends on how much money you got. No, I'm just <laughs> no, no. but you know, I'm I'm a hunter. I've, I trap, I hunt, I garden. I do a little bit of everything, and so I've shot deer with decent racks. But that one, um, I don't. You know, it, it was, uh, and I found it by accident. We had some issues with wild hogs. And I was baiting, and it never came into this area. And I only saw it after deer season twice. And so, deer that grow a rack that big, they have to know how to survive. And uh, so that's another component. That's what makes hunting so neat. It's not just shooting an animal. And so, but this whole thing that we're doing is giving back a consistent, steady food source. So now, instead of uh, having plots on food plots on lands, we can have tree food plots. Think about it. That's awesome. And so the harvest on these things now runs from the first week of September all the way up until the first week of November. And that was a surprise for breeding that we. We're finding little genetic differences throughout the the range of them. Well, I hate that we're going to cut this podcast just
0: a little bit short, but we've got about 15 minutes until former Governor Jay Nixon speaks. And if, if you're out there and you don't know Governor Nixon's history as being a conservationist in this state, then take off your partisan hat because this guy was one of the great conservation governors uh, Missouri will ever know. And it's been a while since I've had the the privilege of spending time with him, and he's going to be speaking about his kind of legacy in the outdoors here in Missouri, but what he's been doing as an advocate for the outdoors since entering back into private life after nearly 40 years how
3: do you how do you address that is it still former is it a I former governor, governor or is it you're I've always never, it's yeah, you're always governor right like you're, you're just you're always the you're always just governor yeah, like Nixon. if you
0: see a president you're like yeah. mr president yeah you don't you know, say so I'll, I'll, okay when i see him i'll shake his hand and say governor how are you sir you know that's how i address him so with that i i do think we covered many of the bases it's really exciting what you guys are doing we got we got time um so we're just going to kind of wrap this up with some final thoughts, and then we'll go into the, to the mystery bait bucket, and yeah. we're going to go hear the governor.
3: Yeah, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to plug whatever you need to, website, social media, where can people get these seeds, how can they reach you if they're interested in getting some trees on, on their property as well. But look at me,
1: Steve you got eight minutes. I see that. I'm up. <laughs> Boy, my bad rap. Guilty as charged, what can I say, but for good cause. Um, yeah, I'll, I'm looking forward to listening to this. Uh, our elk that we have now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to take, um, uh, b- well, before I get into this, though, uh, we do have a Facebook, and we update it pretty regularly. We have good information on it. Leslie updates the website. And has excellent information about how you can get seed. And uh, right now, seed from Ozark Pen are extremely rare. The ones with resistance are even rarer. And we've we will by the time we get done this year, we will have planted and mailed out about three thousand four hundred, somewhere around there, I guess. And uh, this has been a tough year for them too. Next year, hopefully, we'll have a lot more. And but by all means, visit the website. And um, you know, if you know where trees at, let us know. Uh, they were right here. We got survey notes. They were up the Missouri. River. Uh, this is good sitting here with y'all because not only am I surrounded by people making a difference, I get the actual opportunity to thank people that deserve credit and so um, and I haven't seen them here today but the LED Foundation Pioneer Forest is someone way back in 2006 believed in what I was doing and uh, you know and worked with us to supply land on secluded areas to keep it a secret about trying to bring this back and I can't say enough good things about them and uh, you know just really great folks to work with and they're uh, Mission ours are compatible, and also Missouri Department of Conservation. You know they've done great stuff. We have trees growing on their land and today. I talked to Sarah about you know getting these out, and she gave me the green light to talk to um, uh, Justine about this. And then um, also too Missouri Botanical Garden. You know if it weren't for them doing the um, uh, allowing us to do the studies, we wouldn't be able to do it. And then SUNY University in New York, and then uh, don't want to forget about our Missouri State Parks. And then U.S. Forest Service here in Missouri and Arkansas, both Arkansas uh, Forestry across the line and um, Arkansas State Parks as well. And uh, and also the Cherokee Nation. I know you're looking to watch. I got one more. And then not to forget the folks that came through and told me if I would quit state parks early, they would pay my salary to work on this full time. That is the band foundation. And they believed in us enough and what was going on. They're a great place. They take conservation projects that have very little funding or no funding whatsoever and they help them out. So, a uh, huge thank you for them to make this happen and all these good things. And our
2: meeting can we inv- we'd like to invite everybody to come to our meeting dad when is our,
1: our meeting? It's going to be the I believe the 29th and 30th of October. That's a Friday Saturday. I'm not looking at my calendar here. And uh, that would be at Roaring River State Park. We'll definitely promote that again before yeah. it happens. Yes. Great, very good. Yeah, and very what's
0: good. the website? It's
2: OzarkChinquapin.com.
0: Spell Chinquapin for people.
2: C H I N Q U A P I N.
3: That's. Well done! I'm trying to read the hat because I wouldn't have been able to do that. But we'll put the link. In, we'll put the link in the show notes as nice. well. And nice. so here we got in front of this little in front of you, Leslie, is a little piece of Americana. It's a mystery bait bucket. Okay. It's just questions submitted by fans, friends, family, anybody. So it's always random. We just pull the lid off. We shags has fans i just have friends (laughs) (laughs) we we always end the the podcast with just a random question it usually doesn't have to do a lot with the outdoors but if you'll just read the question who it's from we'll all go around and answer it
2: all right this is from kyle carroll it says which outdoor nuisance or pest would you least like to deal with on your next outing
3: Ticks. It's always ticks. That's what I, I was. Can't say. I agree. I hate ticks. That's Growing up I in Oregon, we say. didn't have to deal with them. You had giant deer ticks. You just had to be kind of careful when you were, you know, harvesting your deer. But out here, like God.
1: And, and then the tick-borne
3: diseases
1: that yes. come along with them, you know. I'm just and gonna those say, those
2: gnats, right? Those what are those at the plots when we're going up? Those little like flies.
1: I've always called them buffalo gnats. Yeah, they try to get in your eyes. <laughs> I don't care how much you eat, but you can take spice bush and tear the leaves in two, and they're gone immediately. Hmm. So my my outdoor nuisance is going to be people. <laughs> 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 no, they ruin more outdoor <laughs> o-
0: opportunities for me than <laughs> ticks Especially turkey hunting.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> people. Stay away. I'll take all the
0: ticks. You take the people. That's
3: a real good one. Well, guys, thank you so much. We enjoyed it. Oh, it's contagious. Your your guys' love and passion for this is really contagious. And I joked earlier about not being a tree guy, but hanging out with you. You're turning me into one. So (laughs) Let's go hear the governor. Gear review coming up next. Thank you. Time for the Driftwood Outdoors Gear Review. It's the end of the podcast, but the beginning of the gear review. Brandon, what are you reviewing for us today?
0: You know, Shags, like every good American boy, there was a time I thought I'd be a cowboy. I even moved out to Montana, had a fringed leather vest and a cool cowboy hat. Well, I lost that cowboy hat, so I had to get a new one. And when I was in Valentine, Nebraska last year, where I took two Miriams on one day, I thought, this is a cowboy town, and maybe I'll go get me a new cowboy hat. I did. I got the Resistol Western. It is self-conforming, made in Texas, size 10, in case anybody's wondering, my head size wants to send me a hat. <laughs> it's a genuine signature Panama, so it's that lightweight kind of straw hat, real uh, light in color. I don't know, man. Every time I look at it, I see those turkeys come strutting down that lane and... In Nebraska, and I can't wait to get back out there in April, do it again wearing my Resistol cowboy hat. Mine is the Fish
3: Pond Cross Current Chest Pack because I'm always looking for ways to carry even more gear while I'm out wade fishing. And you can leave your gear high and dry while ensuring it's within easy reach when you're in hip deep in the biggest hatch you've ever seen with the Fish Pond Cross Current Chest Pack. This has got everything you need. Uh, it rides high enough to stay out of your way and out of the water, which is a, a real issue if you've ever wade fished. Like you bend over or you get out there and suddenly all your gear's but by the end of the trip your hooks are rusted and it's got convenient front pocket with magnetic closures, main compartment zip shut and fits large fly boxes. I mean for $150 for a waiting vest, you can't go wrong. It's the fish pond cross-current chest pack.
0: We'll see you down the trail. I got Early mornings, long nights, cold, heat, wind, and so many other factors can stand between a sportsman and the trophy they're pursuing.
3: That's why it's so gratifying when it all comes together. To preserve that special memory, sportsmen often turn to a taxidermist.
0: At Driftwood Outdoors, we turn to Scenic Rivers Taxidermy in Salem, Missouri. Larry and Heath have mounted six bucks for us in the last four years, and every one of them looks awesome. These guys are true artists and experts at deer and elk, but can handle all your taxidermy needs from fish to birds to bears.
3: For a taxidermy experience you can trust, turn to Scenic Rivers Taxidermy. Visit them online at scenicriverstaxidermy.com or or find them on Facebook, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy.
0: At Driftwood Outdoors, we're real proud to partner with hunt to eat to bring you some cool t-shirts depicting our love of all things outdoors.
3: Honestly, there's nothing cooler than to be doing this podcast and then seeing people wear our shirt, which is an amazing, super cool shirt of a gravel bar campsite.
0: If you want to get your own Driftwood Outdoors t-shirt, check out the merch section on our website, driftwoodoutdoors.com, or visit hunt to eat at hunt to eat.com and pick up the driftwood outdoors gravel bar t-shirt today